Welcome to this edition of Back to Basics with Pastor Brian Broderson. Even today, that love of the world starts to draw a person's heart away, and the next thing you know, fellowship is something that is becoming less and less important, less and less vital. And there's a decrease in a sense of wanting to be together with God's people. Today on Back to Basics, Pastor Brian continues his study in the book of Genesis. Join us as Pastor Brian begins his teaching on Genesis chapters 13 through 19 in a message titled, Lessons from Lot. Now, here's Pastor Brian. We have made it through the 19th chapter of Genesis. And as I mentioned, I wanted to consider Lot. As far as the historical account goes, we've now, with the ending of the 19th chapter, we've moved beyond any further reference to Lot in the book of Genesis. But I think there are a number of lessons that we can learn from the life of this man, Lot. And so that's what I wanted to do. Just take one more look at Lot. We've made reference and alluded to some different things and even commented on um, certain things with Lot. But I thought it would be good to just sort of get the whole picture. So we're going to look at uh, Genesis 13, and we might even uh, pop over to chapter 19. But let's um, pick it up in verse 10 of Genesis chapter 13. And Lot lifted his eyes and saw all the plain of Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt as you go toward Zoar. Then Lot chose for himself all the plain of Jordan, and Lot journeyed east, and he and Abraham separated from each other. Abram dwelt in the land of Canaan, and Lot dwelt in the cities of the plain, and pitched his tent even as far as Sodom. But the men of Sodom were exceedingly wicked and sinful against the Lord. Now, of course, we've already gone through that history and seen the, the destruction of Sodom. But in looking at Lot, Lot seems to be the type of Christian who aims to make the best of both worlds. He was a believer. We know that from the New Testament commentary. It's a little bit hard to see any real evidence of his faith in the historical account in Genesis. And I think if it were not for the commentary by Peter in the New Testament, we might conclude that Lot wasn't really one of us. But we're told that he was. But he was a man who sowed to the flesh. And as the scripture declares, God is not mocked. Whatever a man sows, that shall he also reap. If you sow to the flesh, you will reap corruption. And Lot certainly did reap corruption. But Lot becomes really 
a warning. He's a concrete warning to all Christians who think that you can compromise with the world and not get burnt in the end. And Lot shows us that that is not the case. So what do we see when we look at this man, Lot? Well, the first thing we see in our text that we read, Lot was attracted to the world. There he is. He's with Abraham. You know, he's, of course, his nephew. And Abraham is the man who has been given the promises of God. And as, as long as Lot, you know, was with Abraham, he was sort of, you know, in a sense, a, a part of that, you know, somewhat under that umbrella of blessing. Uh, but Lot wasn't all that interested in that. And when the tension arose, that was the background for the decisions that were made, Lot chose to separate himself from Abram. And he looks around and it says that he looked at the plain of Jordan and it reminded him of Egypt. So we see that he was a man who was attracted to the world. Of course, Egypt was one of the great empires of the ancient world. And there was obviously uh, an element of beauty and attractiveness. And so this particular region, as Lot looked to it, it reminded him of Egypt. Egypt is sort of a, a type of the world in scripture. And so we see that he was a man who was attracted to the world. He was a man who uh, set his affection on the things of the earth rather than on the things above. Lot loved his life in this world. You could sum it up in that. He loved his life in this world. He, he wanted the best of both worlds. Certainly he wanted, you know, that blessing that would be there as, as a result of his connection with Abraham. But he also wanted to enjoy the world. He wanted to experience the things of the world. The contrast between him and Abraham, we, we read about Abraham that he looked for a city whose builder and maker is God. So Abraham had no interest in that. He was looking for God's city. He was focused on that which was spiritual uh, while Lot was focused on that which is material. And so he was attracted to the world. Secondly, we note that he was drawn away from fellowship toward the world. He forsook Abraham. And essentially what he did is he, he departed from fellowship. And when you look at this pattern in his life, you find it is a pattern of those who, even today, that love of the world starts to draw a person's heart away. And the next thing you know, fellowship is something that is becoming less and less important, less and less vital. And there's uh, a decrease in uh, a sense of wanting to be together with God's people. And, and we see this far, far too often. And there's a, a slow sort of a drifting, just 
you know, going to cut out a little bit of fellowship here and just go with a little less because there's so much else to do. And then pretty soon we're going to cut out a little bit more. And then, you know, it comes to a point where fellowship is pretty much a thing of the past. Some people feel they don't really need fellowship. They feel like they can survive on their own. But it just doesn't work that way. So he draws away from Abraham. And then we see that he actually, he pitches his tent towards Sodom. Now you have to believe that Lot, Lot knew, I would imagine, maybe not thoroughly, but he knew to some extent that Sodom was a wicked city. And we don't know, you know, what transpired between Abraham and Lot totally. You know, perhaps there would have been a, a moment where Abraham would have pleaded with him and said, well, no, you know, Lot, why don't we talk about this? Why don't you think about this a little bit? But we see his attraction to the world. He moves and he pitches his tent towards Sodom. You know, the world is like a, you know, sort of like a big magnet. And, and it's there with that pole. And it's, it's working to pull us in, you know, ever so slowly, if that be the case, but, but nevertheless, just, just pulling us in. Paul, in writing to the Romans, you know that he said, we're not to be conformed to this world. And uh, a literal translation of that there in the second verse of the 12th chapter is, stop allowing the world to mold you into its image. And that's what the the world does. There's this, this system of the world that's trying to suck us in. It's trying to mold and shape us so that we would think like the world thinks and we would have the priorities and the goals of the world and that we would behave as the world behaves. Lot pitches his tent towards Sodom. You sense there that there is a friendship to some extent, with the world. And we know from James that friendship with the world is enmity with God. Now, perhaps, as sometimes will be the case, perhaps Lot reasoned that he was going to go to Sodom and be a witness. You know, there's a lot of people there that need the Lord. He might have had that kind of a justification because that's exactly what it would have been. And sometimes people do that. Well, you know, I'm going to go out and see if I can minister to people in these, you know, different lifestyles and, and so forth. I'm going, to, you know, I'm going to go back to some of the parties that I used to frequent, see some of the old friends, you know, see if I can lead them to the Lord. But what ends up happening what ends up happening is not that we lead them to the Lord. Actually, what happens is they sort of pull us back in to the world. And that's what we see happening here. The best witness, if you want to really be a witness, you know, the best witness is a separated life. That's, that's really the best witness. And we have to be very, very careful because the world is, is subtle and the devil is crafty, and he's going to 
you know, manipulate things and he's going to use the world quite often and former relationships and things like that. He's going to use that to try to lure us back in. So we see that he forsook fellowship. He pitched his tent towards Sodom. And then finally, when we come to chapter 19, we see that Lot is well at home in the city of Sodom. He's there sitting at the gate sitting at the gate, indicating that he had come to a place of prominence to some extent. They're in the city. You know, if you think of the uh, regression that is laid out for us in Psalm 1, Psalm 1 tells us, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, who stands not in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. And, and it's a regression. You know, you start off just sort of, just a you know, little conversation, just, you know, talking about the world, just maybe a little bit of reminiscing. You know what? Just those old times that we used to have. And maybe that sort of thing, or, or more and more frequently, you're starting to seek advice out from from people who don't know the Lord, from unbelievers, and you're starting to, you know, go for that sort of counsel. And, you know, it starts there, but after a while, you end up sort of just, you know, palling around with the sinners again. You're, you're in the path of the sinners. But before too long, if you don't watch it, you'll find yourself sitting there in the seat of the scornful. That's the regression. And that's what happened with Lot. He was attracted to the world. He chose the world. He forsook fellowship. He moved in the direction of Sodom. He pitched his tent, notice, toward Sodom. But the next time we find him, he's living in Sodom and he's sitting in the gate of the city giving counsel. You know, once we start down that path, back toward the world, it can happen so quickly where we're right back in the pit. We want to stay as far away from any of that as we possibly can. That's the objective. We see with Lot now at this point, he has absolutely no real witness for the Lord. And again, sometimes that's what we use to justify uh, moving in a certain direction, but we find that there's nothing there. It's not, there's no impact because there's an, no anointing because you're not there because God called you there. You're there because you've compromised to get yourself there. And so Lot is in that sort of a position. And when things get really serious and the judgment is about to come down upon Sodom, you remember what happened. Verse 14 of chapter 19 tells us, So Lot went out and spoke to his sons-in-law, who had married his daughters, and said, Get up, get out of this place, for the Lord will destroy this city. But his sons-in-law, to them, he seemed to be joking. And this is one of the saddest pictures of a believer. His life is so compromised that when he tries sincerely to warn people about the judgment that's coming, to them it's just a big joke. You see, Lot had really lost the right to speak to anybody because he was so compromised. 
Our lives will either make or break our testimony. Your life will make or break your testimony. You know, if, if you're there on the job, and on the one hand, you're compromised, you're, you know, partying on the weekends, you're talking about that kind of stuff when you come back to work, people know what you do go to church and all, you know, you, you have some sort of identity as some sort of a Christian anyway. But people can see that there's a lot of inconsistency. You know, whenever you try to get serious with them about the Lord, they just, they can't hear it. They're not going to hear it. Because it's our life. Our life is going to be the thing that gives power to what we proclaim. It's, it's, our lives are going to be part of the attraction that will draw people to, to listen to the truth. Paul, in writing to Titus, he speaks about good works. He refers to them as adorning the gospel. The good works adorn the gospel. Just as you would, you know, put some sort of ornament on, you know, something to, to adorn it. And so when we're living, when we're practicing what we preach, when we're living the lifestyle, it enhances a person's opportunity to receive from us. Because they say, you know, this person, they're living it. They're not just saying it. I don't know if you've had the experience, but I certainly have. Over the years, seen so many people who, you know, could talk the talk and show up at church and, you know, come on to the job site or there and tell everybody, you know, praise the Lord and all that sort of thing. And then turn around and cuss people out, turn around and rip people off. And boy, that is just such a, a sad and tragic thing. That's pretty much where Lot was at. So when he comes with an urgent message and he comes with a message that's actually legitimate, there is a judgment coming, nobody can hear what he says. It seems to be a joke. Lot subjected his family to ungodliness and he paid a heavy price. And as we pointed out previously, we have to think especially those of us who are the heads of families, the heads of households, we have to always be thinking, you know, what are my actions? How are my actions going to impact other people? Because they will. Now, I'm just guessing, but, you know, I don't think Lot really thought any of this through. I don't think he really thought so much about his children when he made this decision. He might not have even thought so much about his wife. Maybe he did. Maybe they both decided that that's what they wanted to do. But did he look at his children? Did he think about the, the environment that he was going to bring them into? Did he think about the, the devastating moral effect it might have on them? Probably not. And a lot of times that's what happens. We don't really think it through. We don't think through all of the ramifications of our actions. We see this over and over again. And so Lot subjected his family to ungodliness and remember the price that he paid. His daughters and his son-in-laws, they perished in the judgment of Sodom. His wife, as you remember, looked back longingly towards Sodom and she became a pillar of salt. She perished. His two younger daughters who survived, you remember that story of how they seduced their father 
and were impregnated through him and you see the corruption that they picked up, no doubt, in Sodom. And we have to ask ourselves questions like, how are we influencing our families? What are we subjecting our families to? Are we subjecting them to things that we think are relatively innocent and, you know, this isn't really a problem, but yet it could become a problem? Alcohol. You know, we were at a restaurant the other day, and Cheryl and I, we saw a couple of young families there, two couples. There they were with their little children. And they were eating there at the restaurant, and they were talking about the church service they had come from. They were talking about the lesson. They were talking about the Sunday school that the kids had attended that day. And at the same time, they were guzzling down various alcoholic beverages. Now, I don't want to be real hard-nosed about that sort of a thing. And, of course, you know, each person needs to come to a, a conviction before God in regard to these kinds of things. But when you just think of it in terms of wisdom, you know, what does that do? What kind of a model does that put forth for the children? See, we too easily say, oh, this is no big deal. You know, this, my kids will never be affected by any of this. But hey, you start listening to the stories of people who are uh, addicted to alcohol. And oftentimes you find out that it started when they were young. I remember when I was a, a boy and, you know, going over to the house of my friends and their parents had a cupboard full of alcohol and they would go away and, well, we'd break into the cupboard and drink the alcohol. And I know I wasn't the only kid that was doing that. And of course, that thing's happening today. And so my question is not, do you have liberty to have a drink with your meal? That's, to me, that's really not the question. The question is, you know, do I really need to do this? And, and what about the, the potential danger? What about what I might do to somebody else? How I might stumble another, a little one? You see, to me, it's too big of a risk. I don't even want to risk it. And why bother? I've drunk plenty of alcohol in my life. I don't know what the big attraction is, honestly. To me, it seems it's, you know, a lot of it's just more of an image than anything else because most of the stuff just tastes terrible. <laughs> I can think of a lot <laughs> better tasting drinks that aren't uh, alcoholic. But these are the things. How are we influencing our family? What about drugs? Now, I, of course, I'm addressing a congregation full of Christians. Nobody has these problems, right? <laughs> You would hope that that would be the case, but unfortunately, sadly, it's not. Because we hear stories about this kind of thing all the time. But again, what are we subjecting our families to? Do we realize the price that will be paid if this kind of sowing to the flesh goes on?
For the month of November, Back to Basics Radio is offering a book titled A Non-Anxious Presence, How a Changing and Complex World Will Create a Remnant of Renewed Christian Leaders by Mark Sayers. According to Sayers, we're living in between two eras, an era that is passing away and an era that is not fully formed. This has created a context of confusion, stemming from the influences of both the passing and forming eras. He calls this time the gray zone. It is a time in which we are living that has caused a cultural mood of anxiety, which has the ability to paralyze rather than prosper. We not only live in an anxiety-infected culture, but many have become anxious presence themselves. So in his book, A Non-Anxious Presence, Mark Sayers explains how to identify, navigate, and adapt to this gray zone phase of global culture. He argues that the only solution for an anxious presence is the presence of God himself. This book will give you a personal awareness of the times in which we live and help you develop a non-anxious presence. So we encourage you to call us right now at 1-800-733-6443 or visit us online at backtobasicsradio.com to order A Non-Anxious Presence, How a Changing and Complex World Will Create a Remnant of Renewed Christian Leaders by Mark Sayers. And when you give a gift to Back to Basics, we'll send you this book as our way to say thank you. We do appreciate your generous support of this ministry. We'd also like to remind you that all of our other resources are waiting for you at backtobasicsradio.com or by calling our request line at 1-800-733-6443. That's 1-800-733-6443. Our desire is to encourage you in your daily walk with God. We'll continue tomorrow with more valuable insights from Pastor Brian as we study together in the book of Genesis. Back to Basics is the preaching and teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, California.